Hey, um, just, just yesterday we had the guy come through our house and uh, sprayed for pests after we moved into, into the new place. Um, isn't that a, a, an interesting stage of living in a home as critters which die overnight start appearing everywhere? Um, just, just this morning I jumped in the shower and there's a little shower window just up here um, that has got the, the roof on the awning outside the house where it appears that last night a, um, a spider roughly the size of a large dog has died. Um, and it's, it wasn't that big, it wasn't that big. A, a medium-sized dog. Um, hanging off the roof, dead. But because it's died from a poisoning, it's completely intact and as terrifying as a, as a living spider. Um, just, it, it made me think about what we've been talking about as we made our way through Romans 7 in particular, right? That there is this, this battle which has been won in us spiritually, and now the effects of sin are slowly being driven out over time. Though for, for a period of time, we can still see the effects of sin, much like the, the, the dregs of our insect infestation. Um, sin still rears its ugly head in the life of a Christian, but it is already true that the battle has been won. Death is being swallowed up by life for those of us who have been connected to Jesus. Sin's day is done. It is a defeated foe, and that is exciting news. We have been making our way through this whole book of the, um, the, whole book of the Bible called Romans, and now we turn... Um, to what is my favorite book of my, sorry, my favorite chapter of my favorite book of the Bible, chapter eight of the book of Romans. A chapter of the Bible where every individual word is precious and obviously so. It's true that all scripture is breathed out by God. All of the Bible is from God. It's important. It's useful. But this chapter, more than so many others, causes such delight, at least in me personally, that I could stay here forever. I would happily plant Romans 8 Church, where we'd just preach this chapter on repeat for the rest of our lives, and we would probably be somewhat lopsided disciples, but we would be happy. Romans 8 is a promise sandwich. It is a beautiful chapter of the Bible, because it begins by telling us, as we've heard already, that we are not condemned. And it finishes by telling us that we are loved unendingly, and in between it shouts to us the glorious riches of a life lived by the Spirit of God. It's beautiful things that we are going to be spending months listening to as we make our way through the book, um, through this just this chapter. We're going to be about halfway through, maybe a little bit less than halfway through, when we put Romans down in time for Christmas, and then we're going to pick it up again in February of next year. And so really for the next four to five months of life in this church, outside of Christmas itself and, and, a, and a brief hiatus in January, um, this chapter is going to give shape to our time together. In my ministry as a pastor, I have never had this opportunity. Um, I know this is true for, for Mike as well. Um, I have preached Romans 8's content before, many times, but I have never had the opportunity to stand here like I am today with a congregation who have been prepared for today, by um, prepared to hear these wonderful promises, by our doing the long, slow work of sitting over the last 12 months in the first seven chapters of the book of Romans. Now, Romans 8 can be as precious as it should be. If Romans was the Mount Everest of the Bible, we have now arrived at the summit. This is as good as it gets. This is the point of the whole climb, and the view from the top makes all of the effort that we've put in thus far worthwhile. I suppose you could say I'm somewhat excited about this, and I hope you are as well. Did you, um, did you notice the weather around the city last week and how distinctly unpleasant it was. It was, it was is, is it just me who dislikes the humidity before a storm? Um, we've had these bouts of rain throughout the week, but none of them have been a surprise. Nobody was surprised when it rained 
this week. We all knew the rains were coming, didn't we? Uh, the humidity comes and it sits like a blanket and it's like a tension in the air that you can cut with a knife this week, literally. Um, it builds and it builds and it builds until the air can't hold the tension anymore. And then comes the outpouring of relief. Rain falls from the sky and we get the cool and the relief that we've been waiting for. Well, ever since chapter one of the book of Romans, we have been waiting for this moment. The tension has been building and building and building. And yes, there have been brief outpourings, um, sprinklings of the kind of celebration, which is the right response to the kind of soul-drenching hope which is about to be opened up before us. But today is not a sprinkling. Today the downpour begins in earnest, and we get to dance in the rain of God's grace. Are you ready? I'm not even moving, so I think I'm just going to get rid of this thing before it's too distracting. So. That'll do. How could I still be doing it? I've turned off. That's not me then. That's what we conclude. It's a different mic. So it should be good to go now. All right. Let's read. If you've got a Bible with you, chapter 8 of the book of Romans, going from verse 1, let's read along. Did I use Comic Sans? <laughs> that is an accident. I apologize. Not comic sense? Okay. Romans 8.1. There is, therefore... Let's stop there. There's a preacher joke. It's old. It goes like this. When you're reading the Bible and you come across the word therefore, our job is to find out wherefore the therefore is therefore. It's pretty good, isn't it? Why is the therefore there? Therefore means because of something. Because of what has come before, that's the thing that you need to understand in order to color in the thing that I'm saying to you now. Here in Romans 8, therefore means because of all of those things which have gone before, because they are true on the basis of those things, these next things are true. One leads, A leads to B. It does follow. In a narrow sense, what is this therefore here for? Well, it's here because of the last thing we heard in chapter 7. But in a broader sense, this also functions to say, because of everything that we have heard thus far since chapter 1, we are now going to start arriving at some astoundingly important conclusions. It's an implication of chapter 7. Did you feel attention last week as Mike was preaching to us? The internal wrestle of wanting to please God with your life and yet constantly finding new ways to break it all. Did you feel the tension? Of holding God's law up as good and yet finding it condemns me. Of knowing what is good and right and true and yet failing to walk in it. Who will deliver me from my body of death if salvation came by our obedience to God's law? That's our heads. That's it. We're done. No chance. Nobody is justified by the law. Not me. Not you. Nobody. But it isn't true. Salvation is not through the law, it is by grace and through faith. And so praise be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's last week's sermon. Jesus has done what we cannot. Because salvation is not by law, because it is by grace, therefore, there is another reality. There is another thing which is true. 
We have escaped that dilemma and we have arrived at something else. There is, therefore, in another sense, it's the same message again, but just way deeper. (laughs) This is showing us that everything we have heard thus far has been building towards this moment. Chapter 8 is the conclusion of an argument of, of, of of a... series of connected teachings which began in Romans 1. We had it announced so early on in our series, you could be forgiven for not remembering Romans 1, 16 to 17, where the whole point of the letter to the Romans was announced in advance. Everything he has said has come after this, and everything he says after today comes after this. Romans 1, 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And ever since then, this gospel, this good news has been unfolding in front of our eyes. What is this gospel that the Apostle Paul has been telling us? It began with bad news. It began with bad news. The problem that makes the good news necessary. Romans 1.18 The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. There's a dilemma in the world. This case has been made against the whole world and against even God's people, the Hebrews, God's covenant people, the whole of the human race, Jew and Gentile, is in guilty rebellion against God. That's bad news from our being up. The problem isn't just a problem of our doing. It's a problem of our existing. The problem is not only one of action, but of being. It's not only that I do sins. It's that I am sinful. And because of that, I fall short of God. We reach the conclusion of the problem in Romans 3, verses 10 to 19. As it is written, No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God. It's the bad news. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Then we got to the good news. There is a remedy to the problem of sin. There is a cure for sin. There is a hope for the sinful to be redeemed. And it's not found within. It doesn't come from me. It doesn't come through the law. God has done something very kind for us. Romans 3, 21 to 24. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. 
For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What has followed on from there has been a sustained defense of that claim that salvation is by faith and not by law. We have seen salvation was always through faith in chapter 4. Consider Abraham and what we learned about him. We have seen why salvation must be through faith. Consider Adam and what we heard about him in chapter 5. We have disarmed misunderstandings of what it means to be saved by faith in chapter 6. Should we continue sinning so grace may abound? May it never be. And then finally, in chapter 7, we turned around for one last time and we kicked to death any last vestigial organ of hope that we would be justified by the law. That is the thought that we are meant to have in our minds as we now turn from chapter 7 to chapter 8. The gospel announces to us a salvation which is by grace and not by law, if you've missed it. And now we are turning to implications. Because salvation is by grace and not by law, what comes into being? What comes next? What does salvation by faith create? What life can we expect to live if we embrace God by faith in Jesus? If this is all true, and how amazing is this? It is! If this is all true and I go to God through Jesus Christ, what happens? Let's keep reading Romans 8, 1. There is, therefore, now, let's stop there. In the present tense, now. In our experience, something which is true this very second has come into being, which previously did not exist. There is something different in the world as the result of Jesus. In the history of all things, you and I were born into a very special moment. It's been called an age of grace. We live our whole lives, and will do from birth to death, lest he comes before we die, in the era, the epoch of God's grace. It comes after the death and resurrection of Jesus. It comes before the return of Jesus. This is where we live. Now, salvation has always been by faith. That's not new. Some things are now true for us, which were not true for those who lived before, even though we, sh- we share the same message of salvation, the same method of salvation. Abraham was saved by his faith. But his experience of God was not the same as yours. Yours is richer. There is a very real way in which we now live with a kind of daily blessing from God that Abraham only ever dreamed of as he followed God by faith into the land of Canaan. The prophets of old were anointed by God to work miraculous wonders and to declare the oracles of God. They heard his voice, and yet we are told they only saw from afar that which is your every living moment of the day, Christian. In fact, the angels themselves long to peer into this mystery and glimpse the kind of blessing which has now been given to us. Unless you think I'm exaggerating, 
I am just quoting the Bible. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of the Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. There is, therefore, now something which is better than what existed before. This particular implication of faith that we are about to unpack is one of the many that was given to the prophets also. Yes, they weren't condemned. They were saved. And yet their experience of what that means was so much foggier, less clear, less understood, less sharp, less certain. They received the same thing as us in a sense. They had it for the same reason. And yet they never heard the name of Jesus by whom they have these things. But we know. We know through our hearing. And we know through that internal testimony of the Holy Spirit who has been given to us a thing which they never experienced. We know the source of our hope with a crystal clarity. We experience salvation here on earth in a way which is fuller and more profound than Elijah. Can you get your head around that? We know. We have the indwelling presence of God. They never did. They, they, they interacted with the Holy Spirit. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ, he's called in the Old Testament sense. I love that. The Spirit is in you to take the things of God and to make them alive and make them visible and make them profound and make them clear. There is therefore now, because of Jesus, in this life, through his death and his resurrection, we have hold of something. We can both experience and understand something that God's people and God's angels have been waiting for ages for God to reveal. Let's keep reading. There is therefore now no condemnation. Let's stop there. Here it is. The center of our message for today. Therefore, on the basis of what Jesus has done, now, in our present experience and understanding, there is no condemnation. If you leave here today remembering only one thing about what we have discussed, remember this, there is no condemnation for the Christian. The next part of this verse will unpack the condition for us. If you are in Jesus, you are not condemned. Specifically, God does not condemn you and never will. And since his is the only opinion that counts, there is no condemnation for you, which matters.
There was before. There was condemnation for you. I was condemned. But now, no longer. How much condemnation is there for you, Christian? Say it with me. No condemnation. And so if I find that I feel condemned, as often is the case, I must conclude that I am wrong, I'm mistaken, or I'm being lied to. There are two words which have very different meanings that sometimes we fail to distinguish between. Perhaps this will help our understanding. The two words are both C words. Condemnation and conviction. Condemnation is what our sins deserve. It is the guilty verdict followed by the sentence, depart from me. What you did, who you are, really does have the effect to separate you from God. Without Jesus, we are all condemned. That's condemnation. Conviction is when God shows us our sin without condemnation. Our forgiveness doesn't come by God looking at our sin and going, eh, doesn't matter, you didn't mean it. Like a loving parent disciplines a child out of willful misconduct, if you are in Christ, when you sin, there is no condemnation for you, but there is conviction. Like a loving parent, God will show you that you are in error. Will show you that there is something better. Will show you his goodness. Which says that there is something better than sin. And that sin is distasteful. But they are different. God still calls our sin, sin, do you understand? He still calls us to leave it behind. He still calls us out of slavery to it. But all of this message is delivered to his children in the context of a loving relationship which will never end and contains no condemnation. We feel this difference. You know the difference between whether you are experiencing conviction or condemnation. Conviction is, I am aware of my sin and I hate it and I don't want it anymore. And condemnation, sorry, conviction is unpleasant. It's not nice, but it is redemptive. It restores you. Conviction leads you to life. Condemnation goes like this. God could never love me after that. How could I show my face amongst his people? I have to hide from him. Where can I go so that he won't find me? Condemnation is unpleasant because it is punitive. God is coming to punish me. That's condemnation. But Christian, you are not condemned. There is no condemnation for you. God is never coming to punish you. Never. This is the flip side of the promise that we heard earlier in chapter 5, verse 1. We have peace with God. 
there is no condemnation. It's the same thing. See, I, I have the privilege of being a pastor and, and speaking with people about these sorts of things as a vocation. And I've often found that we believe this with our minds and doubt it in our hearts. You say things to me like, I know God freely forgives. But when I ask you, so have you received and accepted that forgiveness? And are you experiencing it? There's a hesitation. We know it. And yet we're afraid to believe it, I think. Why are we so slow to believe so gracious a promise? Perhaps because of its enormity. What sensible part of our minds would stop us from embracing that kind of gracious welcome? Were you sitting here last week only aware of the first half of what Mike said? I don't understand my actions. Yes, amen. He got one from that one. I don't do what I want to do. Can you relate to that? I reckon you could. I do what I hate. I think we all know that. Who will deliver me from this body of death? We all feel that futility and that frustration. That resonates. But the wonderful promise that comes next rolls off our backs like water from a duck. An outrage. I think this promise is hardest to believe for those who are most aware of their sin. You see it the most sharply. All of us sin every day. But sometimes in life we sin spectacularly. Do you know what I'm talking about? There's, there's no day where you have lay in your bed that evening where you've made it from, from, from go to woe, sin free. It doesn't always bother us equally. I don't lie in bed at night wondering if I'm forgiven for the little white lies that I told to the cashier. Yes, this nose is natural. It's a joke. I haven't had a nose job. I technically have had a nose job, but it was a car accident. It wasn't my fault. But on occasion, I do something which genuinely shocks even me. And that's the one that causes me to stress. I surprise myself with my own brokenness, and that is when I feel condemned. And I worry. I worry that I've sinned my way out of grace. Can you relate? I thought I'd grown past this. How is this still a part of me? How are we here again? This shows to us how different our sight of sin is to God's perspective. Firstly, because the sins that we think of as small are enormous to him. He is light and in him there is no darkness. So any darkness in me is a problem. And likewise, the sins that we think of as unforgivable he is just as willing to forgive as the little white lie. You cannot outsin grace. 
All sin is enormous to God. All sin is a problem. All of us have this problem. And if you are in Christ Jesus, you are not condemned. For none of it. All is grace. Your sins, both great and small, have been atoned for. The penalty paid in full. There is no condemnation. How could this be true? Let's read. There is, therefore, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Good stuff. That's as far as we're getting today. We are not condemned because we are in Christ. I could preach a whole sermon. I reckon I could preach a whole series on the phrase, in Christ. And one day I probably will. (laughs) To put it super simply, this is what the Christian life is. To be united with Jesus. To be united with Jesus. That is the source of all of the changes which take place in us and for us when we become believers. You are united with Christ and are now found in him. You live your being completely comprehended within Jesus. Who he is and what he has done and what he is doing for you defines you. That is what creates a world in which I am not condemned. To be clear, God should condemn me. I am condemnable. I am guilty. I did the crime, as it were. But in Christ, I am not condemned. Why? Because he was already condemned in my place. How could God punish me again? Because he has already atoned for and defeated my sin. What atoning is there left to be done? Because he is acceptable to the Father and I am in him. And so if God accepts him, if the Father accepts the Son, then I am acceptable to God. What happens to him happens to me. If I was to take a container out of our cupboard at home and I was to put something in the container and I'm to put the container in the microwave, what happened to the thing that was in the container? It is in the microwave. If you are in Christ, what happens to him happens to you and the Father has declared him to be worthy, declared him to be just, declared him to be acceptable, declared with him that it is finished, declared that this is my son with whom I am well pleased, and you are in him. And so you are acceptable. You are accepted. You are rejoiced over. You are received. You are clean. You are forgiven. It is finished for you. 
You are in Christ. And so you are not condemned. But I feel condemned. You're not. Not if you are in Christ. Today is an invitation from God. He's calling us to come and to experience and to receive the deep, gracious assurance that our Jesus has won for us. Why don't you answer these questions with me in your heart of hearts? Do you know that you're a sinner? Do you know that your sin deserves condemnation from God? Do you believe that when Jesus was condemned to die on the cross, it was in your place and for your sin? Do you believe that he rose again, having defeated your sin and death? Are you in Christ? Does God condemn Christ? Does he condemn you? What about just a little bit? It's like that Monty Python joke. Can't I just have a little bit of condemnation? No, you can't. It is finished. Will God ever condemn you? No. Why not? Because that would be some condemnation. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. How much condemnation does God have for you? None. Salvation is by grace and not by law. Do you understand? The law condemns you. Jesus does not. He is a merciful saviour. And he is, he is here to save the likes of you. And he is willing and glad to do it. So what do I do? What do I do if I hear these words and they sound wonderful and yet I still feel condemned? As I've been saying these things to you today, as we've been reflecting on those questions before, maybe you've been feeling uncomfortable because there is a difference between your head and your heart on this. The Holy Spirit has been shining a light directly into some, some parts of my life which I have been keeping away from God's grace. There's a lot of ways we do it. For some of you, it's because there is a sin that you are remembering something which you did that appalled you. And at every possible opportunity, the devil will hold that sin before your eyes and say, how could God possibly accept somebody like you? I know what you did. And you cannot let go of it and accept forgiveness. It is haunting you. It is defining you and it is keeping you a slave. It is not because God condemns you, Christian. You are condemning yourself. Your judgment of you is harsher than God's. 
in Christ. You feel like you need to be punished first before grace can come to you. For some of us, there are lies that we are believing. Perhaps lies which have been spoken over your life, spoken over you by others, which say something different to you than what Jesus says about you. There are names which you have been called that have stuck. Others condemn you. And perhaps you've taken on those names and you are letting them define you and define your future. You have accepted people's view of you, a person's view of you, rather than the Lord's. For some of you, it's because even in this very moment, there is a present sin which you are embracing as a friend. Some portion of your life which you have allowed to wander. And you are feeling conviction, yes, but you are trying to fix this sin on your own before you come to God. If I could just clean myself up a little, then I can go and pray and ask for forgiveness. Then I can read my Bible again. Isn't that the weirdest thing that we do? I've sinned. Therefore, I must stop praying. What? But it doesn't feel comfortable. Yeah. It's still good for you. You are deflecting the problem of condemnation, delaying it, putting it to the side, ignoring it. You are acting as if you are the solution to the problem even though you know that you are not. Christians, today is an invitation from your Savior to come and be made whole again and afresh, to be set free, to be set free from your judgments of yourself, from others' judgments of you, from the problem of avoidance, and to be brought into the very real assurance that God himself has said, you are not condemned. You have peace with God through Jesus Christ. It's time to go to him, to lay this thing at his feet and say, rescue me, Father. (laughs) I'm tired of being the rescuer. Maybe for some of us today, none of that fits. None of it fits. Because you have been keeping your entire whole life away from God. You have never gone to him to receive him as saviour. And this wonderful promise, it sounds wonderful, but it is not yet yours. Maybe you wonder, how could God ever accept someone like me? Maybe you wonder if you can trust him to really be who he says he is. You have yet to begin the life of faith. And you are wondering, is Jesus the missing piece that my soul has been longing for? 
And he is. He really is. Yes, he will accept someone like you. For the same reason, he would accept any one of us. Yes, he really does keep his promises, unlike everyone else. Yes, Jesus in your place and for your sin really is enough to bring you to God. And the last piece left for you is simply to place your trust in him and ask. To surrender. To receive him. And I hope and pray that today would be that day for you. Why don't we pray together? Father, this promise is hard to believe for me because it is enormous. I am condemnable. So how could I be uncondemned? Lift my eyes up, Father. Remove my attention from myself and place it where it belongs on Christ. He is not condemnable. And I'm in him. He is to me life and peace and joy and hope. That's too much. That's too magnificent, Lord. There is nothing else in my experience so gracious. And there is no one else in my experience who owes me less than you. Today, again and afresh, I choose to believe you. That when you say I am not condemned, I am not condemned. Father, I accept your forgiveness. I receive it through your son. Give him to me. Give me that assurance. Give me that hope. Give me your spirit. Make me yours. Rescue me from the futility of law as the basis of knowing you. Rescue me from my perception of me. Rescue me from their perception of me. Rescue me from running. Give me your grace. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and respond in worship.